For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel, joining me over Zoom video conference. Governor Stitt announces new health guidelines for students exposed to COVID-19. Under the new policy, students and staff wouldn't have to quarantine for two weeks unless they show symptoms of illness, as long as their exposure to the virus was in a classroom environment where everyone was wearing a mask and distancing. Neva, what do you think of these new protocols? Well, I think that given the information that was uh, rolled out in this discussion, uh, the new study from the American Academy of Pediatrics that uh, showed in North Carolina schools that had reopened using the same protocols that uh, the governor and the health commissioner uh, outlined on Wednesday, employing face coverings, distancing, hand washing, that the researchers found that there were only 32 in-school transmissions among 100,000 students and staff over a nine-week period, and none involved transmission from a child to an adult. So I think using the data, using this information, certainly, I mean, we have to take into account in this conversation that most public schools in Oklahoma have taught students in person this school year. So uh, the governor, you know, criticized uh, the larger school districts, Tulsa Public Schools, Oklahoma City Public Schools, for spending most of the year thus far in virtual learning, even though those districts have announced that they would uh, reopen schools uh, sometime this semester. So I think I think there is broad support, uh, you know, in this conversation. We had the House Republican Caucus, uh, 49 members, including all leadership, uh, the uh, education chair, the MB education chair, all coming out in support of this. So uh, we'll see what uh, the conversation is moving forward. But uh, clearly, I think this is a, uh, a move that was um, uh, carefully thought through and seems to have broad support, not only among these elected folks that we're talking about, but among parents and uh, people in the districts at large. Ryan. You know, let me just, you know, say at the outset, and and, you know, speaking as a parent of two kids in Oklahoma City Public Schools, one in kindergarten and one in third grade, uh, you know, the there there's I don't think there's any argument that everyone wants kids back in in person instruction. I mean, I think that, you know, whether it's OEA, Oklahoma City Public Schools, the governor, everybody agrees that in person instruction is the ideal right now. And it's just a matter of of how we get there. Um, I think that what the governor put forward um, is, I mean, one of the, you know, even mentioned a lot of elected officials. One person that's notably absent from that group of elected officials is the state superintendent of education, Joy Hoffmeister. Uh, uh, Su- superintendent Hoffmeister said that she wasn't even consulted by the governor's office about this decision before it was rolled out or by the, or from the state department of health. You would think that the state's leading elected official in the area of education would be a part of this conversation. I think that you know that speaks to the fact that a lot of what the governor is doing here seems to be political and not driven by public health considerations. Even the study uh, that that the governor cited from the American Academy of Pediatricians or Pediatrics, their Oklahoma chapter very quickly released a statement after the governor's press conference saying that the new guidance issued by the Oklahoma State Department of Health regarding school quarantine does not adhere with the recommendations of the AAP nor the CDC. And so you've got the governor out of step with AAP, you've got the governor out of step with CDC here. And you know this, this seems to be more of a political attack on two school districts and the state's largest teacher union, Oklahoma Education Asso- uh, Educators Asso- Education Association. And you know, that's, that's really underpinning a lot of this. I mean, everybody wants kids back in school. 
Um, but if we're going to do it, we got to do it safe. Oklahoma City Public School starts next week. My kids are scheduled to go to an A-B schedule next week. Um, but we need to do it. Everybody's got to wear a mask. If the governor wants to do something for school safety, you could have a statewide mask mandate that would do more to get kids back and in school uh, instruction than anything else. And be mindful of the fact we're walking into perhaps the darkest days of the pandemic, not just in the nation, but right here in Oklahoma. Oklahoma is one of the hot spots in the nation right now. We are experiencing a surge like we haven't in the entire uh, course of this pandemic. Uh, so you know, we really need to be you know, mindful of that about every decision we make, including with education. After violence at the U.S. Capitol, Oklahoma Capitol officials are stepping up security. This comes as the FBI warns of possible armed protest at local government buildings leading up to the inauguration of Joe Biden on Wednesday, January 20th. Ryan, how concerned should Oklahomans be of violence in the Sooner State? I think we should be very concerned. You know, the the QAnon movement and the other far right uh, or uh, movement that we've seen around the nation, a lot of it driven by white supremacy, uh, has um, has, you know, I think a deep stronghold in the state of Oklahoma. And if we look at what happened at the United States Capitol last week uh, and it being overrun during that uh, during that insurrection, you know, the United States Capitol was woefully unprepared and there was a critical lack of support among military and law enforcement officials at the at the federal level to be able to help uh, respond to or prevent what happened at the United States Capitol last week. But just imagine if that had happened at the Oklahoma State Capitol, uh, where you have uh, you know a, a much smaller presence of, of law enforcement there. A much you know, I don't think you, you see any National Guard's troops out there, anything like that. Um, you know the the ability to overrun the state the state capital. I think uh, you know is is a lot different than the United States Capitol. And so if if you're working in that building, if you're a lawmaker in that building. Uh, you've got to you've got to see it as a potential target for any of these uh, you know, for any of these um, uh, protests that could turn into something that is akin to what happened in the nation's capital. We've seen a lot of groups say, you know, don't go out, don't participate in these these uh, these events this weekend. I think that that's smart. But again, a lot of this chatter, a lot of the things that are happening, a lot of the planning, and we saw that with the the uh, the protest that turned into an insurrection at the United States Capitol. You know, that, um, you know, a lot of that was planned on uh, social media channels that, that aren't out in public. You know, we don't see these things. And so uh, we should be prepared for, for the worst in Oklahoma. Neva. Well, I think what we have and what the FBI has uh, warned this week is that there was evidence of uh, an, an outright communication in all 50 states uh, that the uh, that there would be marches or there would be protests uh, that uh, would uh, ensue at the 50 capitals as well as in Washington, D.C., leading up to the uh, inauguration on January 20th. I think that the effort to increase security, increase awareness, and to um, uh, create an atmosphere where uh, everyone, particularly those still working in these uh, in these buildings um, understand that that the um, in the instance of Oklahoma that the Department of Public Safety and other law enforcement entities working in partnership have a plan in place have increased security have done what is necessary so that um, um, the public as well as those employees at the Capitol uh, and have cons that the department not only has taken appropriate measures, but that there that they will be uh, every every effort will be made for uh, people to be safe. And so I I think to your point, uh, Ryan, in terms of many of these groups that now 
um, had been kind of lumped in as perhaps ones that would be involved in some sort of a march or some sort of activity on these uh, uh, capital properties this weekend. Many of them have pulled back uh, and uh, recommended to their folks uh, not to participate if, in fact, there is any type of activity taking place. Um, I, you know, it is uh, it's unfortunate that we're you know that we're in this this period where there is. Uh, uh, such concern and the fact that we move from the idea that uh, folks uh, uh, can can go to a public uh, capital building uh, and have a peaceful demonstration outside, as we've seen many times at our own state capital, peaceful demonstrations on a variety of issues uh, that cover the political spectrum from the left to the right and everything in between. But I think that in this instance, uh, I think the concern is to make sure that there's nothing that, um, that that comes about that is anything like we saw a week ago at our nation's capital, just as you described. So I applaud the efforts uh, by all involved in law enforcement and the and the uh, and the very painstaking strategy that they take on uh, to ensure the public safety across the board. And, and as more and more details about what happened at the nation's capital begin to emerge, I mean, it's it's very clear that what happened there wasn't just a romp in the park by a bunch of protesters that decided to break some windows and, and stroll around and take selfies. This was a planned, coordinated attack. There were assassination uh, and kidnapping plots uh, afoot for leading members of Congress. And, you know, I think that what we're dealing with here is an extremely dangerous element, uh, political element in the United States. Part of the security plan here has to be moving forward. Elected officials need to take some ownership for their words and realize that the, con the continued uh, uh, fueling of lies and conspiracy theories is as much a part of uh, the, the security risk as anything else. You know, they, they've got to take some responsibility for radicalizing these individuals uh, and these groups and, and begin to you know, measure their words uh, accordingly. Several black leaders in Tulsa are calling on the removal of Senator James Lankford from the 1921 Race Massacre Commission. The calls come after Lankford's involvement in efforts to delay, discredit, or even overturn Biden's certification as the next president. Neva, what do you think of this request? Well, I, I think it remains to be seen what what uh, what finally takes place. But certainly it's regrettable that we have a situation. Um, obviously, people on any commissioner committee have a right to their opinion. Um, several now have expressed that they that they want the senator um, to resign or be removed from the committee uh, for actions that were uh, taken where uh, he, uh, Senator Langford had um, advocated for the 10-day delay in certifying the results in an effort to uh, to address issues and the ongoing debate about election security. Uh, but in this instance, I think we have uh, we have folks that have kind of taken uh, kind of take step back and said, regardless of the fact that the senator um, helped raise the Centennial's profile nationally, had worked uh, to build uh, uh, very strong uh, relationships with people across the board in Oklahoma uh, in elevating and educating on on the issue of the 1921 race massacre and 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 the work of this commission that now to kind of throw that uh, summarily out based upon uh, the actions and reactions of folks uh, um, is certainly, uh, you know, difficult, I think, to see for everyone. Uh, that not to dismiss or discount the fact that uh, 
many of these uh, folks believe that the senator, in their estimation and what they've said, misjudged uh, African-Americans' perception of the election and politics in general. And what was being said and what they heard were very different, uh, making the point that uh, even in conversations that have been published accounts where the senators said uh, that uh, uh, when you talk about uh, when they hear discussion about Georgia, Michigan, and Pennsylvania as problems, uh, that what they hear is the president has said Atlanta, Detroit, and Philadelphia are problems. So, it, you know, as, as Ryan said a minute ago, words matter. All of this is in a very heightened uh, sensitivity time where um, it's, it's a volatile situation. And, and certainly, you know, we can't discount, and I think what needs to be remembered uh, is that Senator Langford has spoken uh, several times on the Senate floor. He's held public forums in the Greenwood district. Uh, he has been a strong advocate in trying to make uh, positive strides uh, with this commission. And now we'll have to see when they all get together and sort it out, whether in fact uh, there's any changes on that commission by one person or several persons. Ryan. Yeah, I think that <clears throat> this is probably one of, of hopefully many instances where Senator Lankford is going to be held accountable for his actions in the days following the presidential election. I mean, I think that there is just a, a tremendous amount of cognitive dissonance um, or perhaps outright distortion uh, on the senator's part about his belief of, of how his actions played into the insurrection last week and the continuing extremist violence uh, that we see, political violence that we see uh, as a result of senators like Senator Lankford, who since the election, uh, of President-elect Biden have continu continually called uh, uh, and, and called for overturning the election, uh, have called for um, investigations into uh, irregularities or fraud, uh, have lifted, have given credibility to the idea that the election was stolen. Um, and you know, I think that, and it's not just, I mean, that's not just me saying that. I mean, that's, that's Senator Inhofe saying that. That's, that's Senator Mitt Romney saying that. That's people in the Republican Party saying that. You know, Senator Romney in his uh, floor speech uh, the night after the evening of the insurrection, where he said, give me a break. You know, the, the idea that an audit is going to satisfy uh, these groups and these individuals that have been sold this lie of a stolen election for months by the president, that that's going to change their minds. That's not going to change their minds. Uh, it was a it was a political move that was a dangerous political move. It had consequences. And uh, I think that, you know, the destabilizing effect that it's had on our democracy uh, is awful for everyone. Uh, but it's it's especially concerning for communities of color who have who have a long history and, and know awfully well what it feels like to be the target of political violence. And so I think for uh, which the, the Tulsa race massacre was, it was an act of political violence. And so I think for the, uh, the senator to remain on this commission uh, would be an exercise in cognitive dissonance itself uh, to have someone who's played a role in this. Now, whether he eventually admits that role uh, and wants to have a reconciliation process and, and, and talk about what that, what that means, you know, I, I would love that. I mean, I, I, I welcome that. I welcome the senator to, to step up and say, listen, I was wrong. Um, I, I, even, though, even though he stepped back and didn't, wasn't one of the objecting senators, he was one of the leaders in that. 
And you can't just, you know, jump off the train in the middle of it going off the tracks and pretend you didn't have anything to do with it. So, you know, I, I think he'll be off this commission at some point, uh, but I, I would welcome some, some opportunity for the, gov- or for the senator uh, to have these conversations with the people of Oklahoma and to own up to, to the, the consequences of his actions. I think it is important to, to note here that the senator has said that he never considered that asking for an election review, which is what he was asking for, could have racial overtones. So, I mean, we have to take his statements at face value, as well as many of these others that are now calling for his removal. I mean, he never called for the overturn of, an, of the election. He called for a review, whether people agree or disagree with whether that should have been um, uh, uh, should have been something that w- was on the table and discussed is a whole separate is a whole separate matter. But I think the senators clearly said that publicly that he now understands uh, that uh, the reaction and the feelings uh, that have been expressed by members of this uh, committee, uh, the Centennial Committee, and others. And so I think that. I think that we have to I think that we have to give someone who has a record, a demonstrated record in public office of being someone that has been a strong advocate for doing the right thing, for bringing groups together, certainly never has demonstrated anything uh, that would even suggest uh, that uh, that there was uh, uh, some racial overtone to it, that uh, that there was something in his uh, makeup that, that that he was trying to advance some agenda, like some have now tried to kind of move to the extreme and pound on him. I think that's regrettable. I think it's for this group, uh, this committee to get together, to sit down, all of them, and decide how to move forward, but for everyone to kind of sit and take pot shots uh, from uh, the outside without all of the information or not taking into account the information that's already been publicly expressed uh, is really uh, regrettable, not only for the senator, but for every Oklahoman. The state health department is offering vaccines to Oklahoma lawmakers as part of phase two of the plan. Some lawmakers have already received the vaccine because of their age or profession in the healthcare industry. It's not clear how many will take advantage of this plan. Ryan, what do you think about lawmakers getting early vaccines? I think it's a great idea. <clears throat> I, <clears throat> for a couple of reasons, I, and I, I encourage lawmakers uh, to get the vaccine, and I encourage whenever they get the vaccine to make it public and to let to let their constituents know that they've that they've got the vaccine that it's important for them to get the vaccine their constituents that is to get the vaccine whenever it's available to them um, and to help them understand what that vaccine rollout process is uh, you know i think that there's a big part of the public education uh, piece that that lawmakers can play a role in here i also think that there's there's some importance to this continuity of government we saw the last legislative session was much shorter as a result of uh, legislators having to leave the building uh, because of you know fears of COVID outbreaks, and you know we're we're at a point now, and 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 we will be, I think, you know, even even still in February, whenever the legislature kicks off, um, where the situation for uh, COVID cases in Oklahoma is going to be exponentially worse than when it was when the legislature adjourned in May of 2020. So anything that they can do to to lower uh, uh, the capital being a, a hotspot or a super spreader is is great. You know, one thing that I would add to that is that it's not just enough to have vaccines. You've got to have masks. You know, folks have got to wear masks. You still have to 
you know, abide by these CDC protocols. And that's, you know, the House and Senate leadership need to uh, step up to the plate and say, we're going to require masks whenever uh, you're in the chamber. You're gonna, we're going to require masks when you're in committee rooms. We're going to require masks when you're in public areas. You want to take it off in your office. You know, we, we don't advise that, but do it if you want to. The other part of the, the vaccine rollout that I think uh, we should look at, and I, uh, the, the, the phase two includes lawmakers. It should also include staff. Uh, you know, there, you know, there are folks that are just kind of captive up at that building. I've talked to a lot of political operatives and, and people that work there. Uh, and there's, there's a sense that, you know, legislature without something, you know, big happening, uh, that within the first couple of weeks, few weeks, <clears throat> we could be looking at another shutdown the way that we saw last year because of a, of an outbreak. I mean, the, the Capitol Rotunda right now, for folks who don't know, is closed down. Uh, as part of construction. So there's not like a big open air area where people can go around. I mean, you're, you're kind of confined to offices, committee rooms, hallways, and the chamber, all, all for the most part, aside from the chamber, pretty small confined areas, you know, so we need to protect not just the lawmakers, but the people that have to work there. We're, we also have a, uh, a bill filing deadline coming up next week. Uh, you know, so, you know, we've got the surge in cases. There are a lot of staff that are currently working from home that are going to help lawmakers get through that bill filing deadline. But they're not going to be able to work from home once the session starts. You know, so so we need to get those staff vaccinated as well. Neva, I would agree completely. I think number one, uh, just for continuity of government, it makes absolute sense. I mean, we saw it beginning uh, in Washington with uh, members of Congress among some of the first uh, that were offered the vaccines, uh, so that they could uh, continue to move forward uh, with their government operations and the day-to-day work that they that they have to do. And I think here uh, uh, in Oklahoma, I mean, not only those uh, uh, that are working at the state level, but even at city and county level, government leaders, in order to make sure that they can continue to conduct the the, the people's business, do the things that are necessary, that uh, provide the services that uh, the public at large uh, uh, need and, and expect to be there and available, uh, it, it, it becomes uh, critically important. And I think that as you said, Ryan, it does, uh, when these legislators uh, take the vaccine, as other um, uh, public and high-profile officials have, it bolsters public confidence in the safety and the efficacy of vaccinations. And certainly uh, that is a critical component as we work to see uh, to see a high percentage of Oklahomans ultimately be vaccinated. I think uh, uh, this is critical, as everyone has said, and as the CDC has uh, outlined, uh, in order for the vaccines to be the most effective, we have to have a large percentage of the population that, in fact, are vaccinated. True of any vaccine. So uh, this is a this is an ongoing process. I think Oklahoma. Uh, this is one time when I think we can applaud the efforts that have uh, taken place thus far because we have a we have one of the best track records in terms of the vaccination rollout and the number of uh, number of folks that we've. Uh, had vaccinated. Our number of uh, uh, vaccines that we're getting weekly uh, is increasing as a result of that, which hopefully will make it even um, uh, possible to have a quicker and quicker um, rollout. I mean, in all 77 counties, as as they disperse, uh, as they disperse the vaccines to be able to get folks in in a very quick and efficient manner. And we've seen, I mean, like anything, there are going to be hiccups. There are going to be uh, folks that uh, uh, are, are unhappy with uh, uh, how this rolls out. But by and large, I have to say that I think we can say we've had great success in the initial phase. 
The chair of the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board is resigning for health reasons. Robert Gilliland sent a letter to Governor Stitt saying a lengthy hospital stay and ongoing medical issues would prevent him from giving his work on the board the attention it deserves. Neva, what are your thoughts on Gilliland leaving the board? Well, I think it is certainly for the board. I mean, uh, they will greatly miss uh, uh, Bob Gilliland. He uh, currently is the chairman of the board. Someone uh, the governor appointed two years ago has been immensely involved in the work. Uh, someone, uh, uh, he's certainly a person that uh, I know personally, he and his wife, I know that his dedication to uh, to service, uh, he's someone that uh, has a track record of tremendous service, public service to the state of Oklahoma that uh, that uh, warrants great recognition. Uh, prior to prior to coming on to the Pardon and Parole Board, he was the former chairman of the Oklahoma Workers uh, Compensation Commission, someone who has uh, had an outstanding uh, career in the legal profession uh, with one of the uh, top law firms in the in in the state, someone who has contributed at all levels, uh, and uh, I certainly uh, uh, wish him the best for the future and thank him for his service to the state of Oklahoma and in specific the Pardon and Parole Board. And Ryan. Yeah, I mean, a, a huge thanks to Robert Gillen for all of his public service at the Workers' Comp Commission uh, as an attorney. Uh, and, and, you know, most recently on the, the board of uh, the partner parole and uh, the partner parole board in Oklahoma. And he was part of this class that of uh, board members, you know, three board members that the governor appointed that came in and, you know, just, you know, thinking about what they did in 2019 and, and turning uh, the work of the partner parole board around. I mean, they, they took Oklahoma's, uh, they, they are largely responsible for taking Oklahoma's uh, prisons from 112% capacity uh, at the beginning of 2019 to 106 capacity at the end of the year. I mean, that's that's pretty remarkable. I mean, it demonstrates we still have a long ways to go, but it's pretty remarkable. Um, now, what's happened in 2020 uh, is, you know, with with COVID, uh, we've we've also seen a significant drop uh, in the approval rate of of, uh, of parole and commutations from. Uh, from the Pardon and Parole Board. I mean, the board has lowered its monthly commutation docket and reduced reduced the number and uh, rate at which they were uh, uh, applications were moved forward in 2020 by 33 uh, percent. The overall stage one approval rate fell from 46 percent to 19 percent. And this and this is all from Forward uh, you know, study that they did about an analysis of, of approvals that have been happening. And this is at a time whenever commutation. Uh, is an incredibly important way to control COVID, you know, both in prisons and outside of prisons. And we need to get people out of these prisons that don't need to be there, especially these nonviolent offenders that don't need to be in prisons. They're, they're captive, they're in highly dangerous situations, and it's not just dangerous for them, it's dangerous for the entire community uh, that surrounds those prisons for the most part. So I think it's incumbent upon uh, Governor Stitt to act quickly to uh, find a replacement that will uh, act consistent with the governor's uh, imperative over the last several years to get more people out of prison, uh, to use the pardon and parole board as a, as a as a mechanism to get people out of prison that don't belong there, and and to uh, and to deal with Oklahoma's over incarceration crisis. And you know, I think another part of you know thinking about the pardon and parole board itself. You know, I uh, I know that uh, representatives like Representative Melody Blansett out of Tulsa have you know talked about uh, possibly looking at reforms this upcoming session 
that would you know, create a full-time pardon parole board uh, so that you know, these these folks are volunteers. I mean, I think that that's, that's important to say. All of these public servants on there, whether you like them or not, they, they, are, they are volunteers and you know, they're, they're not making any money at this. It's really hard for them to maintain the kind of docket that we need in Oklahoma to be able to address our over-incarceration crisis whenever we're uh, pinning all of that on the backs of, of folks that are ostensibly working for nothing. Aniva and Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.